everyone, and welcome to our first Brexit webinar of 2020. I'm Susan Bright, Regional Managing Partner for the UK and Africa at Hogan Lovells and leader of our Brexit Task Force. I'm really pleased uh, today to be joined by my colleagues. First of all, Charles Brasted, who heads our UK public law and policy team. Peter Watts, who's a partner in our corporate and commercial team and who co-leads our global TMT sector. Robert Gardner, Director of Government Affairs here in the UK. Andrew Eaton, Senior Associate in our UK Public Law and Policy team. And Caitlin Weeks, who's a Senior Associate in our Corporate and Commercial team. By way of introduction, we're going to be presenting a series of three webinars over the next three few weeks to keep you informed, to help you to prepare your business for change, and to advise you on how to engage with and influence the UK's future trading legal and regulatory positions. So in this, our first webinar, we're going to provide an overview of what's likely to happen during the year and the implications for business. The next webinar, Engaging with the Exit Process, will take place on Wednesday, the 22nd of January at 3.30, and will shed light on what we can expect from the future trade negotiations and identify some key issues for specific sectors. The third webinar, the clock is ticking, is on Wednesday the 5th of February at 3.30 and will help your business clarify its priorities and how to work in a climate of continued global uncertainty. You can register for the future webinars via the link in the resources section on your screen or through our Brexit hub. The webinars are open to everybody, so please feel free to share this with colleagues engaged in your Brexit planning. So. Turning now to today's agenda, as we enter a new decade, we begin where we left off on the previous decade with Brexit. However, at this point, it's now almost certain that the UK will indeed leave the EU on the 31st of January, i.e. at the end of this month. The focus then turns to negotiating future trading relationships, and in particular, the ambitious and unprecedented timetable for the UK to negotiate a trade deal with the EU. The UK government will also look in 2020 to begin making use of its new majority in Parliament to push through its wider policy agenda. This means a period of continued uncertainty and also opportunity for business. The first question that might arise is why we're still referring to Brexit, seeing that the UK will have got Brexit done by the end of this month. In our view, it's right to continue to refer to Brexit as the UK's withdrawal from the EU is a process rather than a single event. And while the UK will almost certainly no longer be a member of the EU after the 31st of January, the UK's long-term relationship with the EU is yet to be determined and there may remain some uncertainty for many years, honestly, to come. So a key message from us is that although the government will no doubt will wish to move on from discussing Brexit, many of the same issues that have dominated British politics since the referendum continue to be live, including the risk of a potential no-deal situation at the end of this year. So businesses should remain vigilant to political risks and opportunities plan accordingly and seek to influence and engage with policymakers on the future direction of the UK economy, which is now more uncertain than it's been for quite some time. With that in mind, we're very keen to take questions as we go from all of you, so feel free to send those in 
um, throughout the presentation and we'll try to pick those up as we go. You can use the question box on your webinar screen at any time. It's described as Q&A and technical support. The questions come through straight to us. They're not seen by the other participants, um, but we may read out your question live on the webinar, but we'll obviously do that anonymously. And if we don't have a chance to answer your question during the course of the webinar this afternoon, then we'll pick those up separately afterwards. So, turning to 2020, I'm going to start by um, turning to, to Andrew. Um, Andrew, what needs to happen by the end of this month in order to get Brexit done? Thanks, Susan. Well, uh, after the election result in December, many of the political hurdles to getting Brexit done have now been removed. And so January really is about getting Brexit over the line. There are two things that need to happen to, to do that. The first is that uh, the UK needs to implement the deal that it's agreed with the EU, and that is going to happen by the withdrawal agreement bill, known as the WAB, which is currently going through Parliament. Uh, so it, re it was reintroduced to Parliament yesterday, and it's currently being considered in the Commons. It, uh, it's expected that it should go through with little trouble this week, which would then send it into the House of Lords, and given that uh, getting Brexit done formed a key part of the Conservative manifesto, uh, we can expect that the House of Lords won't push back too forcefully on, on the bill progressing uh, there as well. So we can expect that the withdrawal agreement bill, as I say, the legislation necessary to implement the deal to go through quite quickly. The next step is for the EU Parliament to consent to the deal on the EU side uh, this requires a simple majority uh, of the EU Parliament, and given that um, <clears throat> the EU27 leaders, the Commission and the Council of Ministers have all already signed off on the deal, it really should be a rubber stamping. So those two steps, although necessary, shouldn't form too many problems. Once these steps have been taken, the UK will formally leave the EU at 11pm, midnight in the EU, on the 31st of January, and the UK's relationship with the EU will no longer be governed by the EU treaties, but instead by the withdrawal agreement, which will have been implemented into UK law. So what happens, Andrew, after the 31st of January? But most immediately, the EU is currently... Uh, drawing up its negotiating mandate. So that's currently being um, devised by the, the Commission, who intend to put the uh, proposed mandate to the EU27 leaders at an EU summit scheduled for the 27th of February. That will give the Commission the mandate to negotiate with the UK in the next phase. Uh, and negotiations themselves are expected to kick off in early March. However, in terms of practically for business in the next year, there won't be much change because of the transitional period that's provided for in the withdrawal agreement. From a practical perspective, nothing changes in terms of uh, EU law continuing to apply to the UK and to businesses operating in the UK as, as it does already now when the UK has been a member of the EU um, until the end of the transition. And similarly, EU institutions and other bodies, such as the Court of Justice of the European Union, the Commission and other EU agencies, uh, they continue to have jurisdiction uh, in the UK over the proceedings and administrative processes that they currently uh, 
uh, overlook. Um, and that, that continues until uh, or in respect of any proceedings commenced before the end of the transition. Equally, any of their judgments or regulatory decisions not concerning the UK but other member states are also binding on the UK so long as those decisions are taken before the end of the transitional period. So, Andrew, does that anything actually change then when the UK leaves the EU at the end of this month? So, like I say, practically, it will feel like the UK has never left. But, of course, it will have left. And that will mean fundamental and immediate changes to the UK and EU relationship at a political and constitutional level. The UK will no longer formally be a member of the EU, but will continue to be within the jurisdiction of the EU, temporarily at least, by what is effectively a side agreement. What that means is, with no commissioner or MEPs and no, no seat on the uh, Council of Ministers, the UK will no longer participate directly in decision-making of the EU for the first time in over 40 years. This will undoubtedly have implications not just for the UK's voice and influence in Europe, but also for the balance of power among the other member states in terms of the future direction, policy direction of the EU in the future. Also, EU law will continue to apply in the UK, but it will do so subject to the new terms of the withdrawal agreement and the domestic legislation implementing that agreement into UK law. What that means is that for a business seeking to rely on EU law, for example, in the UK courts, they won't be relying directly on the treaties as they would have done before. They'll now have to rely on the withdrawal agreement provisions that give effect to that relationship. On the flip side, though, we'll have, we've heard a lot about all of the statutory instruments that the government has been passing to replicate EU law and UK law in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Those statutory instruments aren't necessary for as long as EU law continues to apply in the UK. So all of those statutory instruments, although already on the statute book, will not come into effect until the end of the transition at the earliest. Finally, just two points on international trade with the rest of the world. One key point uh, of difference in the transitional period is that the UK can start negotiating with other countries in terms of free trade agreements. So the UK can start negotiations with the US, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, all the countries that the government has indicated it really is keen to start negotiating with. But conversely, the UK, as a matter of technicality, falls out of all of the relationships that the EU has with, other, with those other countries. So as a matter of technicality, I, as I stress, the UK is no longer a party to those agreements. Between the UK and the EU, they have agreed that the UK, for EU law purposes, will be treated as if they are bound by those agreements, but that does not bind those third countries. So what that means is that essentially the uh, third countries could, in theory, refuse to treat the UK as being a member or, or a party to those agreements. It's understood that the EU will, shortly after the 31st of January, send a notification to all third countries that it has relationships with, notifying that it is going to treat the UK as continuing to be bound and requesting that they do as well. But that's an open question at this stage. Uh, so if, if there is a third country that seeks to cause a bit of mischief, by refusing to recognise the UK as such, that could be something that businesses need to bear in mind if it's something, if that agreement is something that they seek to rely on in their operations. 
That's really interesting, and I think next next on the next webinar we'll get into future uh, relationships and trade agreements in, in even more detail. Um, but if we could just for a moment look even further ahead to the end of the transition period, Andrew, what, what's going to happen then? Well, the government is confident that it can negotiate a comprehensive free trade agreement by the end of the transitional period. However, very few people, including the new Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, believe that that's possible. But if the government is right, it will be the fastest negotiated FTA in history. In the more likely event that it doesn't prove possible to negotiate a comprehensive agreement, it is important, I think, to understand the legal default outcome uh, at the end of uh, the 31st of December, because that will inevitably, as it did in the last phase of negotiations, have an impact on the dynamics of the negotiations as they progress. So, According to the withdrawal agreement, the default is that at the end of the transitional period, uh, the UK will leave the transitional arrangements and essentially move into a no-deal situation at the 31st of December 2020, unless a joint committee of the EU and UK formed under the agreement exercise an option to extend the transitional period beyond 31st of December, uh, but they must exercise their option before the end of June. So if that option is not um, uh, exercised by the, uh, by the end of June, it will lapse on the 1st of July. Um, but Boris Johnson has made it crystal clear that he will not extend. Exactly, he, he, he has, but he, he did say that last time about leaving the EU before the end of October. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see what he really, really believes. But, as you say, he's made clear he has no intention to ex exercise this option, and indeed the Withdrawal Agreement Bill currently in Parliament has a provision in it that would prohibit the government from exercising that option. However, this is a bit of political theatre and is probably intended more as a signal of the government's conviction not to exercise that option, rather than a self-restricting ordinance. And of course, the government, if it changed its mind, could simply pass legislation removing that restriction. Andrew, thank you. I'm now going to turn to, to Charles. <coughs> Charles, does all of this mean that legally we're really back to where we were about a year ago? Um, well, I think that's a, that's a really good question, and um, Andrew's given you a, a very detailed and clear sketch of where we are and where we might go. If I can perhaps give the, um, the impressionist painting uh, of that instead. The impression you might have is, where are we? We're told that after the 31st of January, uh, EU laws and rules and institutions will continue to apply as they are now. Um, we know that there's an imminent deadline with a default hard exit. Uh, that's the, the end of 2020. If we get to that point with no deal, all the arrangements with the EU that we are used to will fall away. We know that uh, in six months, we've either got to be confident that we'll do a deal um, or we need to extend time. Um, we know that we've got a Prime Minister saying there will be no extension. Well, I could have said all of that a year ago um, without any contradiction. So is everything the same? In many ways, yes. But I think there are a number of important differences. Uh, and these are no doubt things we'll tease out over the rest of this webinar. But let, let's set aside the important but perhaps um, overly loyally constitutional differences. Um, I think the important point that comes out of that that Andrew mentioned is the implications of those constitutional changes for the level of influence the UK has 
over EU rules and therefore the direction of travel of those EU rules to which we are going to remain subject at least for the next year and will be affected by for very long to come. So that's one key difference. The other key difference, and Andrew mentioned it in respect of third countries, is, is this point that we can now get on with trade negotiations. Come the 31st of January, we can have trade negotiations. That includes the negotiations about our future relationship with the EU, crucially. Um, it's also important, I think, from a contextual perspective, to recognise that a number of what I might call exit issues will have been resolved. Who's going to pay what money to who? How citizens' rights are going to be dealt with? What the backstop position for Northern Ireland is? All of those will have been resolved by this <coughs> agreement. That removes a large number of what had been the political sticking points for the last three years. So it frees up the politics ready for those trade negotiations. I think that's crucially important. Um, do we have great uncertainty now? I, mean, I think there's certainly a, a mood at the moment that at last we have some certainty. And there's a lot to commend that view. Um, what we know certainly is that we've got uh, a fixed position for the next year up to the end of 2020, but that's not very long. We know we've got this 2020 deadline, and that's embedded into the EU law or the international law agreement, also embedded into what Andrew calls the WAB, uh, the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, which will become the Act. Um, that all sounds quite certain. Um, I don't think it amounts to legal certainty any more than it did before. Of course, we started off with a legally certain process with a fixed two-year timetable with an option to extend. So I'm not sure we're in a fundamentally different position there. But what is different is that it's a clear indicator. All of those things are a clear indicator of common political intent on both sides. And I think that's important because the key difference, I would say, is that we're now in a position in this country where we have a government with a substantial majority, a clear policy position, and therefore the ability to deliver on that policy. So those indications of political intent and commitment are more likely to hold good than they did in the past. That, that's my view, at least. What I think is perhaps less clear than ever, in a way, is what comes after the end of this fixed period of certainty. What comes in 2021? A year ago, we had a draft withdrawal agreement, which told us quite a lot about what the next phase might look like. Now, at most, we have a somewhat outdated, somewhat wishy-washy political declaration that gives us a bit of a flavour of what 2021, 2022 looks like. So, mixed picture, a lot's the same, things have moved on, um, more certainty in some areas, a bit less in others. Um, more politics to engage with. Thank, thank you, Charles. Um, I now want to turn to think about the implications for business and bring Peter and Caitlin into the conversation, starting with Peter. Um, for business, 31st of January 2020, end of this month, is that an important date for everybody? Well, as Andrew's already said, I think it's really going to be, for most purposes, a technicality only. The most obvious technical risk to look out for is going to be if there are any legal documents which are so tightly tied to particular provisions of the law now that they simply don't work, notwithstanding the mechanisms Andrew's described. But really, that's going to be an exception rather than the rule. So, Caitlin, then, presumably the 31st of December at the end of this year is now a real big flashing red light for business. 
Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Assuming there's no further extension or interim deal, that date has really become a firm date at which no deal risks will potentially crystallise. Of course, this is a step forward in some ways because it at least gives business a fixed point around which to plan. Um, we've talked about this quite a lot um, on previous um, webinars, but Peter and Caitlin, could you perhaps just refresh our memories about the things that businesses should be thinking about um, around the 31st of December, the risk of a longer-term no-deal in that scenario? So, yeah, we have, we've been through this on several of the previous webinars because, as, as Charles has already alluded to, many of these are risks which have been there since the start of a no-deal. So I'm not going to go through this slide in any detail. Uh, but it does summarise that although there are many areas in which actually Brexit will not make a massive change to the legal position, for example, many private law contracts won't be substantially affected, there are a wide range of issues. And one of the things we've observed is that whilst in many cases businesses have been well focused on the impacts on their front of office and their internal issues, uh, in, other, in other areas perhaps looking beyond that into the supply chain and so on, it perhaps requires more examination. So there's a, there's a summary of the, of the range of issues here on the slide, and they are extensive. Um, clearly, there's almost inevitably going to be change, whatever happens now, to the position regarding the movement of people. Um, as the UK will fall outside, technically, the uh, data protection regulation will also be seeing changes to the way in which data can be moved around. And the wider implications for changes in regulation are also going to be important. All of these are issues which are really around the changes, the differences between the, the post-EU world and the current world. But there are also going to be implications of the actual moment of leaving. Does actually ceasing to be in the EU give rise to a change in circumstance which could have a legal effect? So arguably this has now become less of a known unknown and has become more of a known known, if you like. This has implications for provisions in all sorts of arrangements, from commercial contracts to M&A transactions and finance agreements, all of which deal with change. There are a wide variety of these, such as material adverse change provisions, force majeure clauses and change control provisions. And typically these provide for something to happen under a contract if a particular event occurs, and that might even be the ability for one of the parties to terminate the contract. There's been a lot of debate as to whether Brexit might trigger these clauses. The current scenario does change the previous analysis because often an important factor in those clauses and their interpretation by the courts is whether the parties anticipated the relevant event or if it was in some way unforeseen. Clearly, with Brexit and significant change now, the default position at the end of this year, it will be difficult to argue that this is unforeseen. One point to watch out for in particular is that some clauses of this nature will operate in a different way depending on whether the event was foreseen when the contract was entered into. So if you renew a contract between now and the end of this year, the effect of such a provision might change as a result of that renewal. Of course, things would be different again if there were, were to be a further extension. Thank you very much. We've had, um, I'm just having a look and we've had some questions coming through, so I might just pause now and ask a couple of them. Um, Andrew, I'm going to pick on you, <laughs> that's okay. Um, so the first one, for the benefit of our audience, is can UK businesses continue to apply um, for EU grants during this transition period? And the second one is during the transition period, the purposes of EU financial services law um, is the UK treated as a third country? 
Thanks, Susan. So I think these are both really good practical examples of how the transition period really does mean we are treating this as if we are still a member of the EU. So for the purposes of financial services law, EU law is still binding in the UK and on anyone operating in the UK. Uh, the financial services passport continues to be enforceable, so you don't need to be treated as a third party for the purposes of financial services law in the EU. Equally, uh, EU agencies and other bodies that grant licenses and uh, other form of authorizations, they continue to operate and govern law in the UK. So I'm thinking about uh, life sciences, marketing, marketing authorizations for medicines, uh, medical devices. Those continue to be up, um, authorized at an EU level. Um, and so really it is, perhaps it seems um, counterintuitive given that we will be outside the, UK, the EU. So you would expect something to change, but really during the transitional period, it's as if we haven't left yet. In, 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 in many of practical sort of in ways. In many business yeah. practical ways, yes. Okay, and then we've got um, another question. Charles, um, this one um, I'm going to, to send to you. Um, the option to extend is only available until the end of June, and the question is, so what happens if we get to July and the UK has not opted to extend, which is, you know, what the Prime Minister is, is making very clear is his, his intent not yes. to extend. Yeah, he's made clear that's his intent, uh, and I think, although this is, speculation. Um, optically, it's very unlikely that that option will be used. That's, that's, that, that's my view. It's a, sort of, it's a sort of straw man set up to be uh, knocked down. Um, but does that mean that there couldn't then be an extension? Well, of course it, it doesn't. Um, the EU and the UK could agree some other mechanism for extension. That could be agree an, an extension. Um, in, in those very simple terms, um, or there are a number of other ways of doing it. What we will, of course, be into, and the default position is no extension. We're into the last six months of uh, negotiations on the future relationship, and we'll be coming up against that deadline of trying to get a trade deal, uh, a trade deal done. We'll talk a bit more about what that might look like. I, I, my own guess is that if there is to be an extension it's more likely to be dressed up in some other way, different words, different form, but allowing those negotiations to carry on. There is, of course, as we've seen already, a tension between the desire to allow enough time to negotiate, but also we have seen the galvanizing effect of deadlines, that they have been part of this story and no doubt will be again. So expect us to be running up to the wire a few more times yet. <laughs> So but when you run up to the wire, you, you sometimes get a political breakthrough when you run up to the wire, Charles. What, what, what do you think that might look like in these particular circumstances? Yeah. Crystal ball gazing, I know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, I mean, Boris Johnson's always already gazed in the crystal ball for us, and he says it's going to be a fully functioning, deep and comprehensive free trade agreement by the end of the year. That clearly is technically an option. Um, uh, it's the most ambitious, I'd say probably the most unlikely. Um, at the other end of the scale, you've got, well, there's no breakthrough, we get no deal. But I think the clearly important things are um, uh, how, do you, how, how do you move this on without breaking any of the so-called red lines? And I think that's either going to be in one of two forms, a sort of mini deal or fudge deal, where either you say, okay, we have stripped some bits out of the transition period and we've now got a longer period 
during which we're going to carry on negotiating this amount um, with a more streamlined relationship for the next year, two years, whatever it is, or um, perhaps bolder, you strip back down to a much smaller deal um, and then say that the intention is to build that out over time. Both of those have political issues. Um, they also have, um, uh, I suppose they also have some technical legal points, particularly about trade law, um, as to whether they will be sufficiently broad and comprehensive to deal with some of the trade law restrictions on, on doing preferential deals, something we've talked about a lot before. So I, I think that what that what, what that means is um, we're not going to see the shape of a big deal emerging very soon, and we'll probably look at seeing Boris Johnson doing something um, that looks like a deal late in the day uh, and that allows it to be built on in future. Um, of course, if we don't achieve any of that, um, then then we'll be back into the default position of exiting, and the Northern Ireland backstop will kick in. That's something that probably nobody wants. Can I just add, at this point, I thought it was quite interesting uh, talking about political breakthrough to see a resurgence of the term E3 uh, in the media this week, um, referring to the UK, France and Germany, in particular in relation to discussions around the escalation of uh, tensions in Iran. Um, there's nothing new about the term E3. Um, I think it was first used in 2003. Um, but I suspect we'll hear quite a bit more about it now in relation to the UK's relationship with the two biggest players in the EU. Um, uh, the UK's historic relationship with the US and Boris Johnson's reluctance to criticise Trump in particular uh, is not going to be unnoticed by the rest of the world. I'm obviously not suggesting for one minute that the UK would draw on this to strengthen its hand in its EU trade negotiations, but I think the EU27 will be mindful of it nevertheless. Um, and it certainly shouldn't be ignored as part of the importance of the UK to the rest of the European Union. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really fair point. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Um, thinking, just thinking about the possibility of a deal being done, what sort of impacts does business need to anticipate, Peter? Well, clearly that depends on the terms of the deal, but looking at the political declaration between the parties and indeed the political context, three things at least seem pretty clear. The first is it's almost inconceivable there won't be fundamental changes to the current freedom of movement regime, meaning that businesses will need to assume that in any circumstance after the 31st of December this year, they'll, they'll need to be thinking differently about the way in which they move people around and recruit people. Secondly, um, uh, Susan's already mentioned that we're going to deal with the international trade aspects in detail in a future webinar, but the shared ambition of the UK and the EU and the political declaration is zero tariffs, zero quotas, and zero dumping. As already been mentioned, that's going to be a tall order to achieve in the time available, but if that's what the deal does indeed do, it will substantially reduce one of the potential complexities arising from Brexit, which is the additional cost of tariffs and how those impact on supply chains and so on. Of course, even that won't entirely eliminate the issue because there will still be administrative costs and activities to be undertaken. Perhaps the most obvious fundamental change that's inevitable is that there will be fundamental change in the legal regime. Initially, at least, that's likely to be largely form over substance, since in many areas a lot of work's already been done with the intent of preserving continuity, even if there weren't a deal. So if there is a deal, we can expect a high degree of substantive continuity. But even in the short run, 
uh, it's almost inevitable there'll be a host of technical issues to think about in legal documents which reference or assume the uh, application of EU law. And even if the replacing UK legislation is substantially the same, documents may not work effectively just as a matter of construction. But more fundamentally, in the medium term, we can't lose sight of the fact that one of the fundamental objectives of Brexit is for the UK to take back control, which must mean setting its own rules. So we have to assume significant potential for divergence over time between the UK and EU regimes. And what does all of that mean for business engagement? I'm going to, everybody's look, looking around to see who's going to answer that question. Um, I, I get, yes, of course. Okay. Yeah, I think despite Brexit being done by the end of January 2020, um, I would say um, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty as to the UK's relationship with the EU and indeed uh, with the rest of the world. Um, it looks set to continue for the foreseeable future. Um, I don't think we have the certainty that some thought that we would have uh, post-election. Um, I think it's just as essential for business to continue to engage with government uh, on a direct basis, um, to understand real-time progress and indeed appetite for any future direction. But I would add, uh, Susan, that I think there's also significantly more opportunity for business in the UK in 2020. We talked a lot about mitigating risk or identifying and then mitigating risk in 2019. I would say there's still very much the need for that identification and mitigation, but I would say in 2020 there's also much more opportunity. For example, as the UK begins to um, negotiate trade deals with the EU and the rest of the world, uh, big decisions are being made on the future of the UK uh, and its place in the global economy. And I think these negotiations provide a, a once-in-a-generation opportunity for business to shape the fundamentals of the UK economy. Uh, and therefore, for that reason, yeah, now is a really good time to, uh, to capitalise on that by um, scrutinising, uh, interrogating and engaging uh, with government on its, um, on its policies. That actually leads us really nicely onto the next topic, which is the UK government's wider policy agenda. Um, Robert, do you mind carrying on and sharing any insights? Sure. Um, well, look, from a personal perspective, let me say that again, from a personal perspective, I think the removal of the threat of renationalisation uh, four-day working week, 10% ownership of companies going to workers has really buoyed the investment case into the UK. I'm not saying that uh, Brexit hasn't had an impact, but certainly um, those I've spoken to have listed those as being the reasons why they think we're going to see a lot more corporate activity uh, in 2020. Um, but back to government, we know from public statements and indeed as a firm with conversations that we've had with uh, ministers and MPs this year that the newly emboldened UK government is acutely aware of what they're calling the borrowed votes, uh, which, it were, which it was given uh, in the election uh, and has resulted in such a large parliamentary majority. Uh, the government is clearly keen to retain these votes uh, at the next election, but even before that, I think, to demonstrate to those who lent their support to government um, that, that that was the right decision for them to do. And so, um, as a result, I think the government, with its majority and mindful of that agenda, uh, is in a position to make some fairly major changes to the rule book, uh, the way that government operates. Um, we know that the government's pursuing a fairly aggressive programme of investment and empowerment into regional Britain. Uh, some of you may have read 
yesterday about proposals to change the, the Treasury Green Book, the book that governs procurement rules, uh, because uh, Sajid Javid has said that he said that this had um, gave an unfair advantage to uh, the southeast of England. Um, so we're seeing some fairly seismic changes to the way that government operates right from the beginning. And again, that feeds nicely into this notion that there is renewed opportunity uh, for business. Um, I think the government will use its investment program to support other policy areas, uh, which were central to its manifesto. So I think areas like strengthening the union of the United Kingdom, um, I think we can expect to see strategic investment which seeks to show Scotland that it is better off inside the United Kingdom. And again, I think this presents investment opportunity for business, albeit that it's unclear at this stage exactly what that will be. Um, all of this creates, I think, a really strong investment case for um, business, but in, um, but in new and unexpected ways. Um, business needs to be close to government to appreciate this opportunity fully and to be ready to capitalise on it. Um, let me just finish this section. I think the bottom line is that investment opportunities will come quickly, uh, but I think they'll come in an unexpected way. I think they will be tied closely to political deliverables, and I think business therefore needs to be close to government both to appreciate these opportunities, but also to ensure that it executes them in a way that is sustainable uh, and allows government to achieve its, its objectives just to keep the uh, investment on track. Thank you, Robert. And turning it back again to Peter and Caitlin, um, what do you think all of this means for people who are looking to invest in the UK? I think there's two slightly different things. We could perhaps come back to the implications of the domestic policy agenda in, the, in a moment, but there are also just issues that potential investors need to think about just around the uncertainty surrounding Brexit. I think that's right. So when looking at Brexit uncertainty specifically, if you're looking to invest in the UK over the next 12 months, you clearly need to factor the range of potential Brexit outcomes into your thinking. So that means in the same way as since the referendum, Brexit needs to be a key part of your due diligence. If you're buying or investing in a business with significant UK exposure, you really need to assess how well prepared it is for the range of potential Brexit outcomes as they stand today, as well as understanding how those outcomes might impact that business. And as Peter said earlier, one thing we've observed is that many businesses are really well prepared when it comes to the more obvious risks, such as their own regulatory status, but are really less well prepared when it comes to the less glamorous but business critical issues like the back office. And of course, there are potential indirect impacts. For example, might a 31st of December outcome trigger consequences further down the target business's supply chain, and that could have a significant impact on that business itself. But the good thing is that for many of the political risks, there are commercial solutions available which can enable those risks to be shared through the transaction documentation. For example, if you identify through diligence that new customs arrangements could have potential cost or revenue impacts on a target business through its supply chain, that's definitely something which can feed into pricing discussions. But we've also addressed these sorts of specific risks in deals with individually tailored risk allocation provisions. When it comes to the transaction documentation, both buyers and sellers will really need to be mindful of the change-related clauses that I mentioned earlier, particularly if there's a gap between signing and completing your deal. And of course, if your transaction also includes a financing element, you really need to ensure that the way the material adverse change clauses operate are consistent as between your documents. So you're not exposed to completing on your main transaction, but without access to the finance necessary for you to do so. And then in terms of merger control, if your transaction is likely to be subject to approval from the European Commission, transactions which are notified to the Commission before the end of 2020 will remain within the jurisdiction of the Commission. 
but at present there's no real clarity on who will have jurisdiction in relation to UK transactions which could require EU merger control approval and will be notified after the end of this year. That could be the CMA, the Commission, both or neither. So if you have a transaction which is likely to fall into that category, designing your strategy for engagement with the Commission, the CMA and potentially other relevant competition authorities will be a really crucial aspect of your deal planning. And then a final headline point for me is to ensure that the wording of clauses such as warranties and restrictive covenants is really carefully considered where these refer to the EU or to EU legislation. And these are particularly important in long-term deals like co-investments or joint ventures. Thank you. Um, Robert, coming back to you again, what about the domestic agenda and investment? Well, we, the day after the general election, we published on our Brexit hub um, a blog that looked at some of the opportunities uh, and indeed some of the risks for business, um, mindful of the result that we saw. But um, and, and people with an interest in that can have a look at, at that, which is on our Brexit hub uh, on the website. But just three highlights from that uh, for now, Susan. I think overall um, there is clearly a drive for high-tech, high-skilled, um, innovation-led economy uh, with the vision of global Britain uh, rather than focusing on, on the European Union for our uh, trading relationships. And I think this, this is important to government for three reasons. First, um, substantively, um, obviously, uh, government wants to create jobs and, and um, sustainable jobs, um, and this government has shown that it's keen to do that uh, in the regional economy, that is the non London economy, um, and, and don't forget that that means both the north of England, southwest of, of England, but also Wales, Scotland, and, and Northern Ireland as well. Um, secondly, the political expedience of showing those who lent their votes, what I was talking to earlier, uh, to, the, to the government at the election from non-traditional conservative constituencies um, have been delivered prosperity into their constituencies, presumably with the hope that they will continue to lend their support in future. Um, but thirdly, I think beyond Britain, um, government, um, understandably, I think, is very keen to show the rest of the world, the non-EU, non-Britain, um, that um, the UK is globally as progressive and future-looking uh, an investment destination uh, as it can. Um, and that's really important for global growth uh, and, and sectoral focus. Um, it's also important for government to show the rest of the world that not only is Britain innovative um, and uh, future-proof, but also it has the skilled workforce and the facilities, uh, facilities sorry, that will activate the uh, inward investment that it's looking to attract. And, and Peter and Caitlin, what, what does that mean in practice for, for investors? I think for investors looking at the, at the UK, in light of what Rob has just said, there are some clear policy intent on behalf of the government not just to, to reinforce the commitment to service-based industries and infrastructure, but also particular high-tech sectors. So, for example, the single, single clearest commitment in the Conservative Manifesto to industrial strategy was to make the UK the leading global hub for life sciences after Brexit. I think it's really worth considering what that is likely to mean in practice. The UK already has a very strong life sciences sector worth over £70 billion to the economy each year. The UK Medicines and Medical Devices Regulator, the MHRA, is very well regarded internationally. The NHS is an attractive location for international companies to run clinical trials. And there are various tax measures, including the UK Patent Box, which support investment. 
Um, the UK government has already said that it will make an unprecedented investment in science so it can strengthen research and build the foundations for the new industries of tomorrow. And it's also said that, as Peter mentioned, that it will make the UK the leading global hub for life sciences after Brexit. So in terms of what we're likely to see, there are likely to be changes to regulation. So whilst the UK will likely continue to follow EU regulation closely so it doesn't create barriers to entry in the UK market, the government has indicated there will be changes to develop a streamlined and internationally competitive approach to regulation, particularly for innovative medicine, medicines and devices. These changes are likely to include accelerated approval processes for new medicines and medicines being assessed for approval in the EU and reduced administrative requirements for low-risk clinical trials and trials of innovative medicines. The government is also committed to providing increased R&D funding to attract private investment to unlocking long-term capital and pension funds to invest in the UK scientific discoveries and for investment in health data systems to support research and international scientific research collaborations. And these initiatives, of course, are closely linked to the whole approach the government has got to immigration. So, uh, ending the automatic right to free movement for EU citizens and replacing it with an Australian-style point system ties in closely with the idea of making the UK an attractive destination for high-skilled individuals to come and work in high-tech sectors. And is that really what Boris Johnson means when he talks about global Britain? Well, I think it's that, and also the fact that Brexit, as we've mentioned, also presents an opportunity for divergence in the regulatory regimes, which could be seen as an opportunity to make the UK more business-friendly. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that this is inevitably going to have implications for the type of deal the UK can get with the EU, and it's unclear as yet as to what uh, options the Prime Minister has in mind in terms of possible future divergence, depending on what deal he can get with the EU. But certainly, Global Britain seems likely to involve both attracting high-skilled individuals and perhaps a business-friendly regulatory environment with the aim of making the UK an attractive place to invest and do business post-Brexit, not just for UK domestic investment, but also with a view to making the UK an attractive destination, for example, for private capital to base itself for international activity. The challenge for business is going to be to understand to what extent the government is really keen to deliver, rather than, as we've already mentioned, made something of this as a campaign election strategy. Peter, I think that's right. Um, certainly ministers we've met with this year um, have made it very clear to us where their priorities lie, and they've been keen to hear ideas from business on how to deliver those policy objectives. Um, the political product, um, some of those on this call may have, have experienced, um, but it's a product that we've developed at Hogan Lovells. The clients draws on this steer from ministers, but also subsequent discussions with their uh, political special advisors to understand more about the political drivers, and then obviously to work with senior policy officials, the permanent civil servants, to hear how Whitehall would practically make uh, the policy work. The final part of the jigsaw, of course, is MPs, peers and commentators just to appreciate the nuance and weight of support uh, and therefore likelihood of change to that policy from, from Whitehall but it's, um, and Westminster. But it's very much in this way, looking at the constituent parts of what makes up Westminster, um, that we can really take suggestions in from business to make sustainable changes, but also bring that intelligence back to clients so that they can be much more informed uh, in their, uh, their long-term decision-making. Robert, thank you. We've, um, I'm just going to, while I've got you um, holding the, uh, the um, chair, as it were, um, we've um, got another question, which is that you mentioned the need, and this was one for you, you mentioned the need to continue to engage with government, but what do you mean by that? 
And if we're already a member of a trade body, is that sufficient? Are you able to, to take that one? Thank you, Susan. Well, well hopefully, um, thank you for the question. Um, the end of what I just said might have addressed uh, some of that. Um, but I think there's two points. The first point I make is, is in general terms, the, the price for weight is usually dilution. Uh, and I think there are clearly going to be instances where um, going through a trade body or a membership group is going to deliver the deep and heavy voice that's necessary for Westminster to, to hear what's being said. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize that there will be circumstances where there is a much more, uh, a much narrower need in terms of feeding in um, policy suggestions, feeding in feedback on the status quo for policy, uh, but also the other way, listening, understanding where there is nuance, where there is appetite for change, um, and getting a sense of, of um, when that might come. And as I just explained, I think that's where it's absolutely critical to understand the constituent parts of what we refer to loosely as Westminster, the ministers, the political advisors, um, the senior officials, the permanent civil servants, backbench and opposition politicians, um, but also those commentators, the think tanks um, and the media. Um, I think if you lay all of those on a bedrock of trust, trusted relationships that have taken years to build up uh, and will create an environment where people um, appropriately can be fairly frank in their assessments of the direction of channel uh, and, and the, the likelihood of change. And I think that then brings together something that can be very useful to clients who are maybe considering corporate activity, but may in fact just be looking at their next five or 10 year strategic cycle. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, I think it's now time to really draw this to a close. Um, to the extent that we've not been able to answer any questions, we will come back to you individually. Um, but in the meantime, to wrap up today, um, please don't forget this is just the first in the next three-part webinar series to kick off this year. So, as I said earlier, the next webinar engaging with the exit process will be on Wednesday, the 22nd of January, same time, 3.30, and you can register via the link in the resources tab on your screen or through our website. Um, more generally, you can stay on top of the latest on Brexit and the negotiations by signing up for our regular Brexit bulletin using the button at the top of the homepage on our Brexit hub at hoganlevels.com slash Brexit. The hub contains all of our thinking on the legal, regulatory and market issues around uh, Brexit. And as always, if you want to discuss how Brexit might impact your business, how you can best prepare, do feel free to get in touch with us by contacting one of my colleagues who has spoken today or a member of our Brexit task force or by e emailing us at brexit at .com. So it just remains for me to thank my colleagues very much for joining me this afternoon and to thank all of you um, for joining us on today's webinar. Thank you very much for listening.